everyone to the Epsilon Theory podcast. I'm Ben Hunt, uh, Mr. Epsilon Theory, I guess, and this is episode number six. This is the business of Wall Street. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm just so excited about this, this, this episode. But before we get started, a quick favor to ask. If you're listening to our podcast and you're enjoying them, please do me a favor, take a second, give us a review, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you're hearing uh, this podcast. It's a, it's an odd request, I know, but actually it really makes a difference. Of course, if you're listening to this and you're not enjoying it, then, you know, leave it, leave it alone. But with no further ado, I'm excited about this podcast, The Business of Wall Street, because I have two guest experts here who know more, have forgotten more about the business of Wall Street than I'll ever know. Now, the first of these guest experts, well, He's not really a guest. He's my partner. He's Rusty Gwynn. Hey, Rusty. Hey, Ben. It's great to, great to have you here. What you may not know about Rusty is that he's run asset management divisions. He's been on the investment banking side for setting up these, these deals around these products. Anyway, Rusty knows a lot about this stuff, and I, I think he's got some at least some good stories he, he maybe can share with us. Today. Only enough to be dangerous, but <laughs> right, go right. Well, my... Not, I was going to say my real expert. My other expert here is my, my, my good friend, Dave Nodding. So Dave is the director of research at ETF Trends. Before this, he was the, the CEO of ETF.com. Uh, way back in the distant past, <laughs> Dave, I, I think you actually set up some of the very first ETFs with, with, with Barclays. And what we just learned, Rusty, and I did that you actually you literally wrote the book, the CFA book on ETFs. So Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, anytime, Ben, and, and good to meet you in person, Rusty. Likewise. Yeah, we, we also discovered that, that, that we all share a, 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 an affection for Dungeons and Dragons here. So I, I think later on tonight is, is, is Dave's D&D night. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll finish up this broadcast so, so, so Dave can get to planning his next campaign. Although I, I have to know, because we didn't get into it. Dave, what is your character? Oh, God, <laughs> I knew, I was going to say, I'm not even going to talk, maybe I play a Goliath cleric. There, we're going to move on. Nobody wants to hear about Brilliant. your character. No, Ever. no, we've got a client in our campaign. That's I hate to inform you, but our, our usual audience almost all want to hear about your character. Yes, that's right. That's right. I play, they'll, they'll I play be one a of the Goliath most character in a, in a FinTwit D&D game. So. Amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, I, I, I said that the, the title of this podcast is The Business of Wall Street because it's touching on, looking back on this, a, a couple of things that we've been weaving through the prior episodes of the podcast. We started off talking, the, the very first kind of renewed podcast we did was about Bitcoin, crypto in general. And I'll say the big takeaway from that, the, the takeaway I, I wanted to make with that, is that what I think we're seeing around Bitcoin, maybe crypto more generally, but certainly with Bitcoin, is what I'd, I'd like to call the, the productization of Bitcoin, the adoption of Bitcoin by Wall Street. And that that adoption, the creation of products that sell Bitcoin, right? It, it'll, it'll have definitely some impact on the price and the, the, the price volatility. But the reason I think that, that Wall Street is doing this is because they want the flow. They want the business of Bitcoin in exactly the way that, that I think 
all of the products on Wall Street are created. It's, it's to get the business, it's to get you to partake of them. I mean, it's striking to me that, that most of what we as both individual or as you know, institutional investors, most of what we do in terms of buying and selling on Wall Street, it's not shares of common stock. Right. It's, it's not. Yeah. 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 Sure. There'll be some, you know, we'll buy some shares of this of company XYZ or sell some of ABC. But almost all of what we actually do in terms of buying and selling in financial markets, it's not common stock. It's some vehicle for common stock. Yeah, it's a package. Right? It, it's yeah. a package. Right. So when we, we talk about a product, when we talk about the business of Wall Street, we're talking about the creation of these products, these packets, these vehicles that can contain stocks and bonds, maybe, or maybe there's some other instrument that is, you know, a, that's what we call a derivative, something that is related to, but it's not that. This is the business of Wall Street we want to talk about. And this is why I've got you two guys on, on, on here today. Well, and it's the, it's the business as you've described it before in almost every case of financial innovation which I think in a lot of the examples we'll, we'll roll through here today, and not always in a pejorative sense, boils down to either one or both of two things, right? Which is the application of leverage or the securitization of a thing, right? And, right. and so productization is in most cases, some form of, of this idea of financial innovation, how you create a product usually by either adding leverage or, or making it into something akin to a, a tradable instrument or security. Right. I mean, with the exception of the ATM, right? Right. That was, whose who's famous phrase was that? I, I hadn't heard that before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, have you heard that, Dave? This was, um, oh, oh, hell, who, who's the, the, the really tall Fed chair? Volcker. This Volker. is Volcker's famous line, right? That, that, that the only good financial innovation in the history of man was the automatic <laughs> was the teller ATM. machine. Yeah. And, and, and it's such a good quote. And, and I agree with that so wholeheartedly that the, the ATM is, is the only one, the only financial innovation I can come up with that doesn't fit the model of either, well, it's a new way to securitize something or it's a new way to apply leverage, period. Yeah, I think, I, so not to already start disagreeing with my host, I, I would say that financial innovation um, is all about manipulating the variables on which we measure the capitalist economy. So what I mean by that is uh, uh, the first example that came to mind that is not true of what you just said is anything that's just shifting something in time, right? So if I'm simply saying, yes, I'm going to buy stock, I'm just going to buy it tomorrow, not today, and you create an instrument to do that, all you've done is say, I'm going to securitize changing a variable in my economic equation, T, time. Right. And mm -hmm. I can now move that in and out. And part of the reason we end up with so many Greeks to describe what happens in options is because every one of those Greeks is just one of those variables that we, can, we want to shift around least securitize. Right. No, Which I, is I, part I, of the reason everybody gets so into options as soon as they start thinking about finance math. It's because almost everything interesting you want to do with money is tied up in options somewhere, right? What, you know, if it's not Vanna, it's charm. It's in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's a really good point, Dave. And, and, and it, it, it goes back to this idea of, you know, I've been talking about, well, it's not so much price that Wall Street cares about, it's flow but it is flow that Wall Street cares about. And, and I think actually it was, it was an exchange with you, 
Dave on, on, on Twitter, you know, I've been talking about flow mostly as, as trading or transaction flows. And as, as, as I think you rightly pointed out, and this will be, I think, a key point when we talk about the financial innovation of ETFs, right, is that flow is not just trading flows, it's also asset flows. And in fact, maybe, maybe asset flows for, for most of Wall Street, certainly the asset management world, that's, that's actually the more important aspect of flow. Right? Yeah, and absolutely. Somebody, it's yeah, where all the money gets made too, right? And, and I think what we get hung up on is um, we, we talk about flow and we talk about things like payment for order flow, right? All these things that, mm-hmm. are, that seem nefarious because they're just ways of extracting value from the system here and there. Um, the more interesting thing is actually the flows that move across what I call the notional barriers between different parts of the economy, right? The ATM lives in the cash economy. Your 401k lives in the notional economy where you do care about price because price is what determines how big your notional value changed. But it's all meaningless, of course, until you turn it into the cash economy again and do something with it. And I all the interesting it. stuff to me in finance happens when you start creating those cross-border flows. As, that's a great point. I mean, we were talking, I think Rusty and I were the other day about how market world, it, it, it has become a, a, a symbolic world almost unto itself, right? Where, where we, we're not really buying or selling those common shares of stock, that fractional ownership share in a real world company with some claim on its real world cash flows, right? We're not really bridging that gap anymore to your point of borders. We are trading a symbol, GME, with, uh, you know, in a symbolic entity on some, you know, system of bits and bytes on our, on our, on our smartphone as a, as, as a purely symbolic exercise. The inputs are symbolic. What, what we are responding to so much, I think, in our own minds are, are the, the symbolic outputs of this, you know, number go up. And it, it, to your point, it's, it's, those, those connections with real world, I find they become just more and more tenuous over time. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And and to to your point about, well, not to your point, you, were, you mentioned crypto at the top. I think yeah. one of the things that, that people who think deeply about this part of the world, which let's acknowledge is a pretty small group of people who even care, um, part of the reason I think we get excited about what's going on in crypto is because it seems like it's going to remove all sorts of actors from those flow diagrams, right? It seems like we're going to just disintermediate an entire industry built around packaging and and productizing and securitizing various parts of the global economy and then shoving it around the system. Crypto feels, and I say feels because I'm not sure it's true, uh, like a solution to that, if in fact that is a problem. So I, I think that's part of why there's so much interest in it right now. I know that's certainly part of why I'm interested in it, is because it, it certainly has the potential to remove all of these trusted parties that we rely on in mm-hmm. the system. Well, what you're getting to, I mean, my take on that, Dave, would be that this, this notion of... Uh, Sometimes I call it, you know, you can, you can have it in one form of, you know, sticking it to the man. You expressed it much more, I, I think, nicely, which is that, no, we're going to disintermediate all of these, you know, entities and institutions that have gotten between us and our use of money in the real world in the past. 
I think that's a story. I think that's a narrative. It doesn't mean it's not true, but I think that is absolutely the, if not the dominant, you know, a real driving narrative in, in, in leading to what, what all that is happening around crypto. And I say that not to get us focused on crypto, but because I think for all of the different Wall Street products or packets or packages or vehicles that we want to talk about today, whether it's ETFs, whether it's SPACs, right? Whether it's exchange listed options, right? Um, you know, I thought, you know, mortgage-backed securities, what, what, whatever these kind of vehicles or packets that, that we want to talk about today, my sense is that all of them, the adoption, the success of all of them has hinged on the presentation and acceptance of a powerful narrative. Again, not saying that the narrative is false, but saying that the narrative works, meaning that it works to capture investor, and I don't just mean retail investor, I just mean an investor's attention and mind share and say, huh, all right, I want to put my money into that product rather than this other product. And I, I, I frankly, I'd love to start, you know, talking specifically about products, about how it was invented, why it was invented, what was the story and the narrative that spurred its adoption. I'd love to start with ETFs, Dave, because that's been your, your career, you know, your, your professional yeah. career certainly late. And like I said, there's nobody who was, you were there at the creation, <laughs> you've been there through the entire adoption process. And I just want to I just want to rip off riff off of what I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, sure. Off, riff I, I off of whatever the, you want to say about it. With the enormous enormous caveat that I might have been in the room, but I was getting coffee, right? I mean, I was a child <laughs> at the time. Um, I was twenty five years old or something like that, or twenty seven years old, um, and knew nothing about it, and was an enormous skeptic. But the 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 genesis of the ETF was actually trying to find a solution to the problem of portfolio insurance, uh, which I think is lost on most people, right? The ETF was actually invented by the SEC report on the 87 crash. That's where ETFs came from. That's where the idea of creating this exchange traded pool uh, that, that could in fact replace the kinds of things people were using futures and portfolio insurance for in the 80s. That was the whole idea. Now, Toronto got there ahead of us with the, with the tips securities that started trading in 90. Um, but those securities actually came from the same people. It was still Nate Most uh, at the Amex driving people towards this sort of end state. The, the thing that I think is most interesting is um, it had to get invented out of whole cloth. Like when we mm -hmm. think about a new financial product, for the most part, you can sit here and say, okay, somebody sat in a room, they had a smart mm -hmm. idea, they figured out an addressable market, they figured out the regulatory structure, they figured out how to market it, they built it and they sold it right? Capitalism. Yay. Everybody wins. That's not what happened with ETFs, right? The day that the first ETF opened, it, it, you could have heard a pin drop, right? <laughs> the, the, the unknown about whether or not these things would actually do what they're supposed to do was nobody had any idea because it requires several participants to all agree to play by the same set of rules, many of which are not like laws. They're simply agreements about how the world is gonna work, right? The fundamental mm -hmm. premise of an ETF is that you create a traded pool of securities that can have whatever price the market wants to assign to it 
that you keep in line to its fair value by creating the opportunity for profit and another third party, this what we call the authorized participant. And, mm-hmm. and you're counting on greed to hold the system together. That's all it is, right? Let's just call mm-hmm. it is. It's the greed of the authorized participant making the ETF work. If that goes away, the ETFs becomes a closed end fund, which is a terrible structure for almost everything. So, so there was this real concern that you would launch something like SPY and nobody would show up. Now, obviously they did the work to make sure that wouldn't happen on day one, right. but you look at most of the innovations that we've seen in, in the markets over the last 20 years, um, really since the, the ETF caught hold in the early 2000s, um, they all have that quality of just sort of, well, build it and then just bite your nails and pray that everybody agrees to play by the rules, right? Whether it's what's going on in the SPAC market, um, whether it's going, you know, just the IPO market, Bitcoin, right? I, I think people get caught up with these being sort of greater fool trades, but they're not. They're just people really agreeing to play by a given set of rules, the, the, as, as Adam Butler from uh, you know from uh, Gestalt U, as he is on Twitter, calls it, it's the operating system of capitalism. Or maybe he stole that from you. I don't know. But <laughs> but we all agree to these certain sets of rules and, and regulations and laws and norms. And when those get blown up, everybody gets upset. I mean, it's a very it's a Hume concept, right? This idea that the 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 one precondition for markets to function in sort of that Hayekian sense is that everyone agrees that they're going to play by the, those same set of rules and it, it it is it's a powerful story it what's funny to me is that it it's so different from the narrative that surrounded ETFs when I first encountered them in my professional career I was sort of the, the kid getting coffee in the room in 2004 um, at an investment bank that was representing Invesco in their acquisition of PowerShares. And so, you know, in 2004, I guess this would have been late 2004 going into 2005 when those negotiations kind of started, the, the story of, of ETFs was, was very different, right? At that point, it had already transitioned to number one being uh, a recognition of some of the fundamental tax problems uh, embedded in, in mutual funds and how this was a solution for those for certain types of strategies. And number two, how it was a going back to our prior point on crypto, a disintermediation and or decentralized way of accessing what to date had been a broker dealer and wirehouse, you know, monopoly on delivering active investment product or, or any kind of investment product through mutual fund vehicles. And that if you wanted to access about half of the decent mutual funds in the universe, you had to go to somebody who actually had it on their their platform, had the ability to sell it, and met the minimums. And so, those were the stories as as you know well, we were being pitched power shares that that had taken true. over. They're all yeah. true. Like so, yeah. everything you just said is still hundred percent true. It's Absolutely, the I sleep at night, right? I mean, I, I you know, for all the things that I could say negative about packaged products and indexing, passive investing, we can go, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to wade into all those things they're still better than virtually any alternative the average investor has in the system that we've agreed is the system we play by, right? So ETFs to me are just a hack on the system to bring a bunch of sort of salutary things that investors need, whether it's liquidity or, you know, tax fairness. So you only pay for your own activity, uh, you know, or not paying for intellectual property that's worthless, like most active managers. Like these are all good things. Reducing costs are a good thing. Ensuring that people can retire. These are good things. Doesn't mean that the fundamental operating system is still not broken as you know what. Yeah, because... It does require, as you were describing, the that look. There's got to be a chance for for 
people to make some 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 money at this, right? The the the, the you know the, the, yeah. the authorized participants there they they they've got to be able to make some money there. It's got to be something that I'll say the sellers of it, right? They've got to make some money off of it. And, and, and where it ends up, I think, so much is that you go through that period of of scale, right? So so all these products, I think, we can talk about when there's a story that works and when there's a system that allows some stability and to make money from the growth of that system, it always leads to the, the, the pursuit of scale, right? Always, right? Well, and and, and it's, this is true, I find, both in the, I'll say the management of ETFs, it's true in the, the set, you know, establishing an ETF. I mean, I, I remember, you know, we were looking at, you know, from time to time setting up an ETF at our, our prior place, right? <laughs> and it was like, we, we just couldn't see our way to doing it because it needed such, it, it was a significant investment, right? And if you didn't get that scale from having some, I'll say some clever theme or some clever idea for what the hook was for your ETF to distinguish yourself in down this market of ETFs, you know, it, it wasn't going to fly. Well, uh, although, you know, I think and this gets the kind of Dave's point. I think that's really actually more an indictment of this, the sort of same ecosystem that grew up around mutual funds and mm -hmm. that you, while scale was helpful, there were hacks if you were a mutual fund manager to gain access to, to platforms on, you know, sort of selling this idea of specialized skills or specialized product. And so, you know, you could run a, a, a couple of mutual funds on a, on a 40 act platform and say, you know, we're, we're a, a, a shop that only focuses on these one or two or three asset classes. And, you know, we're going to be, we want to be a specialist on your platform and, you know, in your sort of barbell strategies, right. And you could sell that idea, but yeah, it, it was, it was certainly tough for us to consider ever launching ETFs. I mean, for a few reasons, one of which was, you know, we ran leverage strategies that would have had to be packaged into an ETN that never would have never would have flown. Mm -hmm. But you know, some of it, you know, I, the, the core argument was always the difficulty of establishing adequate scale and you know the expenditure that it would take to build that infrastructure to push that product, right? right. Because we couldn't compete. Well, and this is so. Once you've got you know in this the market that exists now for ETFs, what what do you have to do to launch an ETF today, Dave? Is it a matter? Is it seems to me, and you tell me, you tell me if I'm wrong. It's gotten you've got, you've got it has gotten easy, but, yeah, but to make so it, we, to make it we, successful, do you have to have what do you have to have? Well, distribution, right? I mean, that's yes. that's the name of the game, right? So it is always going to be a scale game, right? Uh, if if we're going to pay asset managers on an AUM basis, then AUM is the name of the game. That's axiomatic. Mm -hmm. um, we have made it a lot easier, right? I mean, last year we did finally implement Rule Six C Eleven, also known as the ETF Rule, which took. ETFs from being a hack, literally a set of exemptions you needed from the operating system of capitalism to function, to being actually embedded in the operating system, right? We are now, Rule 6011 establishes that an ETF is a thing that is allowed to exist and provides- it's part of the kernel now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're, we're part of the system, the ETF industry, uh, and we weren't for the first 25 or so years. So that's a big deal. Um, that means the costs have come down. It's now, I wouldn't say it's trivial. I mean, you still need a good idea and, you know, a hundred thousand bucks or so to, to get the ETF out of the gate. And then you got to figure out who's going to buy it and why. Right. Um, and and why? that's actually a good thing, right? If we can get all the friction out of the way and all that's left is the intellectual property, 
to me, that's the end state, right? The end state of financial services is when you are paying on a completely disaggregated basis for the things that actually have value. So if you need execution services, you pay for those. And if I need intellectual property, because Epsilon Theory is going to start running a portfolio, I should just be able to license that from Epsilon Theory. I don't need to go to iShares to get an index that's being run by Selective that you guys are feeding a quant model into so that you mm -hmm. can get the fourth payment down the line. I should just be able to give you 10 basis points and license it directly. And we're getting there, right? That's part of what black blockchain is going to make easier. Um, it's part of what direct indexing is going to make easier, right? There's a real movement towards deproductizing a lot of this stuff. Well, and, and for this reason, and, and Ben, you may call me naive, Dave, you may as well. I mean, I, I honestly come out closer to considering ETFs more on the spectrum of the ATM machine mm -hmm. than I do, I think, a lot of the other things that we talk about as being the products of both financial innovation, as well as, I think, this broader concept we've been talking about lately about, you know, democratizing investments, right? Because, you know, ETFs weren't the first way to democratize investments. I mean, I hesitate to call anything the first thing, you know, when, when, you know, the REIT structure was created in 1960, 19, somewhere in the 1960s, right? The, the concept there was in a sense, providing, you know, re your regular investors with the opportunity to access real estate investments and, you know, dividend paying and yield paying dividend investments that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to access, right? Same sort of thing with BDCs when, you know, they came online in 1980, was this idea that you're going to access things that 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 you know you wouldn't be able to access private equity or venture capital unless you're the kind of institution that, that that had access to that? Now you could through BDCs, and and so now we're seeing the story with SPACs and some of these other structures that are all about quote democratizing investing. And and while Dave points out that wasn't how ETFs originally got launched, it didn't take long. Somewhere between you know you know the 1990 and and. In 2004, people realized, no, this really is an instrument which democratizes investing in a lot of ways. But to me, it doesn't, it, it, this is my opinion, but it doesn't have that effect of, of being this deleterious force on markets that almost all the other examples have. I'm still a little bit of a, this is closer to being an ATM, an ATM. thing. I, Am I, I wrong? I would, I would agree. I mean, the, the metaphor I try to use when we start talking about the financialization of frankly, everything, um, is that from an investor's perspective, which is a different perspective than the financialization of everything, from somebody who's just got a pile of capital that they have a need to grow into a larger pile of capital, they're just on a journey. They're going from point A to point B. There's time in between, and they want point B to be at a higher altitude than point A. It's no more complicated than that. Everything that gets you from point A to point B, we know what that is. It's transportation. You can walk, like stick it in a, under a mattress and you're not going to go very far, or you can get in a car. And an ETFs turn out to be pretty darn good transportation. But like any other vehicle, you're going to stick on the road. You can drive it too fast. You can run into pedestrians, et cetera. Doesn't mean that it's still not a pretty good vehicle. You just know how, you have to know how to drive it. When did the story of ETFs change from, I'll call it a, a vehicle for more liquid portfolio insurance for institutional investors towards this, oh, this, this is how we, we, we citizens should more easily get in the car and drive on the market interstate. When did that happen? Uh, directly pretty soon, pretty after quickly? the 2001 crash, or 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. that, 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 was that whole era, depending on, 
people mark that era differently. You know, I should probably mark it by therapy bills. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> some somewhere after 2001, when people started looking around and looking through the detritus of what was left over of American capitalism, a lot of people got very smart and said, hmm, maybe pets.com for 40% of my portfolio is a bad idea. Maybe I should do something else. I still love growth. Let me buy the cues, right? That's That was really that movement we saw. That's when advisors found ETFs for the first time. It's when family offices and wealth managers found ETFs for the first time. It also coincides, frankly, with right about the same time we saw an explosion in what you could get in an ETF, right? There weren't fixed income ETFs until 2000, right? There weren't commodity ETFs until a couple of years after that. A couple of years after that, you got gold, right? So now we look and say, gosh, you can get every asset class in the world with 14 different versions of derivatives on them in ETFs. Back then, there were a couple hundred ETFs, and they were all, for the most part, large cap equity in a bunch of different markets, right? It's been very recently that we've had this explosion where you can sort of say, if you're an asset allocator, you can be 100% ETFs and do very well. Dave, what, what does not belong in an ETF? What's, 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 what, what do you think doesn't belong there? Yeah. So because of the way liquidity works in an ETF, which is that you need this authorized participant to mm -hmm. be your voice in the market, right? The authorized participants, the one who buys the stocks in the S&P 500 and then presents them fait accompli, settled to a, a fund company to get the shares of the ETF. That process requires a certain amount of liquidity and even more importantly, a commonality of information about yep. whatever that underlying is. So you can think about it really just from the underlying perspective. If the thing you're trying to wrap in the ETF is broadly available and well understood, knock yourself out, right? That right. E easy. But if it's a distressed, long. if it's a distressed bond, you probably don't want to put that in ETF. Yeah, with with a caveat, right? Because if mm -hmm. the alternative is you're going to stick it in a mutual fund, it's still <laughs> yeah. way better off in an ETF. Yeah, yeah, right? well put. Because, yeah. because the, as much as the purpose of that creation redemption mechanism is to keep the price of the ETF and the fair value at the same price or relatively close, it's actually valuable for that to be able to disconnect. So we've seen that in, like just recently in March, when we yep. saw high yield bonds, that market locked up. You couldn't trade a tobacco bond from North Carolina to save your life on the worst days, 20 March 27th, 23rd, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, but the ETFs traded like water, right? So you created this opportunity for liquidity to exist and for those opinions to be expressed through trading while the underlying market was broken. And that's actually but who a was valuable taking, But who was taking the risk there on the creation redemption side on the, the authorized participant side, because it sounds to me like that was a pretty significant risk to be, and I'm botching the terms here, kind of be on the presentation side at the end of the day. Yeah, the, the great answer is nobody was taking that risk who chose not to participate in that market. Right. So if you went in, if, if on March 1st, you held, I don't know, HYG, right, the iShares mm -hmm. junk bond fund. Um, and then on, on April 1st, you went and looked at it. And those were the two dates you looked. You had a great time. Nothing, nothing wrong at all. You just you had a very straightforward experience. If, however, you chose to participate in price discovery during those two weeks in March, which was a choice, then yeah, you as a participant in that market were taking risk. You as an individual trader saying, yep, I am buying this thing, even though it's advertising a, you know, a 
perceived discount of whatever or perceived premium of whatever. If you're doing that as an individual, you're choosing to take that risk, even though the authorized participants stepped away from the underlying bond market and said, I'm not going to touch this thing because my models are broken. So it gave everybody a chance to walk away. That's actually really valuable. Like failure is really important. Hmm. Right. And so, and that would have been really different if you were, yeah, if you, if, if your mutual fund holding was of the. Well, we, we saw that, right. When third Avenue mutual funds collapsed a couple yeah, of years exactly. ago, it was precisely because they ended up in a liquidity cascade in their own fund where they had to sell the most liquid thing they owned. Then the second most liquid thing they owned until they basically had a run on the fund and they had to close it and make everybody wait. Um, and nope, that's bad for everybody, right? That's a broken system. That's bad for the investors. It's bad for the fund company, which probably goes out of business, right? That kind of failure is much more disruptive. Allowing the market to disconnect for a period of days is, is a service. And even, I mean, the SEC's response to, you know, the, the, the Third Avenue events I remember was, that. was to promulgate these, these new rules about classifying, you know, you had to come up with a liquidity the risk buckets. management program as a, as a 40 act mutual fund provider. And you know the 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 issue right was of course that you know they wanted the the development of these explicit buckets and you know every credit manager in the world is looking at these buckets saying look i mean the the level of specificity that you're looking for here and when i'm actually going to be able to find liquidity for some of these bonds i mean i i it's it's either there or it's not and it, when it's not it's going to take up all of these category 1 2 and 3 you know level liquidity names so it was you know i, I think they they meant well but well, well let me turn it around then so 40 Act mutual funds, that's another product, right? It's another product. It, it's another product. And for, for all the things we've been describing, right, ETFs have these advantages over 40 Act mutual funds for both institutional and retail investors. Why do 40 Act mutual funds still exist? Um, I'll answer that first, and then I'll <laughs> give Dave an opportunity to do it. Um, this, the cynical answer is... 40X mutual funds exist because the entire wirehouse and broker dealer compensation structure for the management of most of the assets of high net worth individuals in America is completely dependent upon Selling the, that. The, the share class structure of mutual funds to, you know, to stand in for compensation that would otherwise come from that investment institution. That's the sole reason and the cynical explanation why 40X mutual funds exist. I, to no, compensate I your cynical at all, I think it's 100% accurate. Uh, I think it's insufficient <laughs> because the 401k market's the other reason, right? So yeah. mutual funds are beautifully designed for dollar cost averaging because they trade in fractional shares by default, right? That's the accounting system for yeah. mutual funds is built for fractional shares. The accounting system for ETFs is not. It makes it very difficult to use an ETF in a 401k. 401k is the defined contribution is the number one driver of asset flows in this country. Um, you know, as Josh Brown calls it, it's the endless bid, right? There's always somebody there who's buying because every day somebody's getting paid and everybody's got a 401k, not everybody, but you know, a lot of people have 401ks or 403bs or 457s. Um, and all that money just shows up and buys and shows up and buys and shows up and buys. And we know exactly how it leaves. We know exactly when it leaves. So it's just this endless bid on the bottom of the market. That money all goes into mutual funds because of an accounting issue. Yeah. So I'm sorry, explain that to me, the fractional shares. So, so explain why that's the case. Well, like why I your mean, money can't just go directly into 
Well, you I, so when you get a payroll deduction, right? It's yep. it's three hundred and twenty-two dollars and eighteen cents. It's whatever the percentage based on your salary it is that then shows up at your 401k record keeper to be invested immediately. That's how we've set up the 401k system. So you now have $311 to allocate. If you've got a portfolio of 12 funds that you want that to be in and a global diversified multi-asset portfolio, you can't even buy one share of every ETF you'd need. Yeah. And and it, and it doesn't, you know, from a, from a, a manager of a 40 act mutual funds perspective, it, it doesn't make that much difference anyway, because you're, you're not matching dollar for dollar at whatever you're investing in and whatever you're investing in is going to have different settlement versus the cash you're getting in anyway, because your mutual funds, it's, you know, you, you've got to satisfy T plus one, right. And everything that you're doing on the, on the security side, you know, is going to settle on a different schedule. So, you know, if you get a thousand dollars in, it's probably, you're probably not going to trade anything, right? Your, right. your portfolio is just going to have more cash. Right. So, so you know, a, being able to, yeah. So as a regular mutual fund manager, you're sitting on a slot bucket every morning. I mean, when I ran a mutual fund, that was the first thing. Every morning you'd walk in 7am, you check your custodial sheet. You'll be like, oh, okay. Got 700,000 bucks to get to work today. Or conversely, I had a $700,000 drawdown. It hit my line of credit. What the heck am I selling? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, you, that's when you get the, uh, the email from the, the custodian with the, uh, okay, we'll do this one more time, but uh, yeah, until then exactly. you're going you to throw more you cash. You've got to call Citibank. You need a bigger line of credit. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's how it works. Right. And you don't want to sit on that cash because you're not being paid to run cash usually. Um, so it's, it's a horribly inefficient structure, particularly if you've got flows in and out and ETFs get rid of that. If you're an ETF manager, you walk in and you just see what you own. That's it. That's every day. You just see what you own. I mean, there, there are a couple of, couple of other, you know, kind of nuanced reasons why, you know, 40X might exist. You know, some people make the very tortured argument that, well, if you're a very long-term term holder from a tax perspective, ah, that's, that's nonsense. The, uh, the, the, the other reason for mutual funds might be that they do permit through blocker structures, the ability to, to hold some derivative instruments that and some ETFs private make difficult. a few other yeah. things, right? I mean, ContraFund notably always has what, five yeah. or 8% in private companies, lets them do some interesting things. You could argue that's a that's a net benefit, right? Most investors do not get access to those securities unless they're in a mutual fund that does that for them. What about active management, right? What about actively managed strategies? Is is there is there, there used reason? to be? I mean, five years ago, I would have told you that was the one of that those was things. the story. Well, that was certainly the story. Um, it's getting a little bit harder to tell that story. What, just like why all those things belong in mutual funds, not in ETFs? Yeah. Yeah. We now have multiple competing non-transparent structures for ETFs. Exactly. They all work. Nobody cares about the plumbing but me anymore because they all just work. (laughs) Um, They all do what they say on the tin. They now can all do custom baskets, which means they recapture the last piece of efficiency from a passive ETF that that was a criticism of them. Um, And we've also seen the rise of innumerable active managers who have done just fine in a fully transparent structure, very thing, but, you know, think about arc, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people just talk about Kathy now with a first name, she's become such a household name. Right. And I think she's proven that, you know, if you, you can run a very successful front without worrying about being front run all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a fear that we had too, and which proved to be completely unfounded. You know, our, the, the, the gentleman who was a PM of one of our, um, real asset strategies was 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 concerned about that transparency and you know how it was not only going to be you know would people still buy it if they knew what we we held really did yeah well but a genuine concern that you know that that people would would jump out and 
um, you know, try to predict the the behaviors, you know, that were competitors or, or hedge funds. And, uh, you know, I think it was an, an, an ill-founded concern, or at least it's yeah. turned out to be that. I think it well, was an ego argument. I, think I mean, so I'm so special. Everybody's going to try to follow what I do. Right. Who's going to follow what I do? Right. Right. Well, there, 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 there are two places we could go from here, from, from the, this ETF discussion. One is to talk about, well, ETFs, when I, when I look at, you know, my Robinhood interface or something like that, I, I don't see a lot of, oh, buy this ETF choice. I, I don't see that as being the, the activity that's taking place uh, du jour, right? Uh, so we, we, we can go that direction. Or we can talk about these other products that, that Rusty, you were a little less, I think, charitable about, whether it was the BDC business development companies that are corporations, corporations. That's, 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 that's what BDC stands for, kind of the progenitor of what we call SPACs today, right? Or, or a, yeah. a, a similar idea, yeah. right? That, that, that you're going to give your money to a manager and they're going to find something to buy. Is that, that's the, let's let, actually, let's go in that direction. Let's, we'll save the GameStop and, you know, weekly call option productization for, 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 for last year. Let's talk about these other kind of vehicles for uh, these packets, right? As, as, as Dave was calling them, blank check corporations, any sort of corporate where I'm giving you my money in this, this, this vehicle and you're going to go do something else with it in markets. You're going to go buy something else, another company with it. Or assets. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, w- when you look at a lot of the democratizing, the history of, quote, democratizing investments, th- there's, the, there's a few things that keep popping up. One of which is, you know, the, the idea of them being sold on, on the expectation that they were delivering some investment strategy or access to an asset or to an asset class or or to an investment strategy that was not accessible through traditional instruments and liquid markets or through strategies that you could buy, you know, through a- So a, like a what Dave was talking about, the contra fund, we've got an allocation to privates. But it's it's right. limited by, the, you know, the you know the, the SEC limitation on, on 40 act funds restricts the extent to which, mm-hmm. you know, a, a fund can invest in non, you know, illiquid instruments or instruments which fall outside of the described investment strategy um, of, of that fund. And so, you know, you, you had, you know, REITs, you know, REITs were really, I think, the, the first, and we don't think of them, as, you know, we think of them as a, as an equity REIT being a, a real today. estate investment trust, right? Where, yeah. where you're pooling your money and they're required to give the cash flows back to you, like 90% or something like that. And, 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 and it was, and that's part of the, what I would say is one of the other narrative stories that was, was often told is that as part of the democratizing investment story, yield has always been this way of selling things to the retail investor. And so mm-hmm. whether it's REITs, and I think BDCs were, were largely driven by this as well, there was both a supply and demand story around BDCs too, where I think, you know, I, it actually was, BDCs were established as part of the, uh, I, more of the, the small business administration vision hmm. to revitalize the sources of capital for small businesses, right? To make it so that private small companies could access the public markets in a way. Right. right and 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 to do so indirectly right and and so there was both a a narrative of how this serves the economy and also a narrative of how now does the retail investor gain access to a yield generating asset or, or portfolio of portfolio assets portfolio of these companies, that they would right. never be able to access before I, it's a little different from SPACs, but i mean in, in terms of 
yeah, are you hiring a manager to acquire certain assets and then you get the, the, the investment returns from those assets on that basis? Yeah. It's, I suppose it's. Yeah. I mean, it, it is still trying to give a class of in, a non-accredited investors access mm -hmm. to capital assets that are traditionally reserved for the elite of the capital system. That's, that's the point. Um, to a large extent, that was the point of a mutual fund as well, right? Back in mm -hmm. the, back in the 1940s, right? Common fund, that was the vision, right? Was how do you go ahead and, and bring stock portfolios to individuals who don't have enough money to build a stock portfolio, right? It was literally a monetary issue. Uh, a sizing issue. Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about SPACs right now because a SPAC before 2010 is an entirely different vehicle than a SPAC before 2010. And we use the same acronym and it's annoying. A well, Dave, SPAC, you're the guy to tell us about it. So, so, so walk us through those changes that happened in 2000. Well, so the, so the idea that a SPAC, a SPAC is a blank check company, that, that idea is still there. You're putting a pool of assets together with the intent to go purchase a private asset because it's a legal definition right the, the blank check company is sort of enshrined in yeah that is the actual that, yeah. that, that's a term right yeah, that's yeah a term well yeah. well except ironically we still talk about SPAC so that's rule 419 mm -hmm. um and those SPACs those original SPACs traded on bulletin board stocks they were rampant fraud in some of them lots of shenanigans reverse triangle merger garbage I mean it was a cesspool of M&A shenanigans and the only people who made bank on it were investment bankers. Yep. A modern SPAC post 2010 is actually a very clever way of removing investment bankers from the capital formation process. Because what you do in a SPAC is, you know, you, you put a very low par value on it, $10 a share. You get that money, out, you, know, you collect that money uh, in, in an offering where there's really no reason to pay a premium for it. And so most SPACs, recent history being slightly off. Yeah, I want to come back to this. I want to, but, I want to come back to this about pre-acquisition price appreciation. Launched, yeah. Most SPACs yeah. still launch at 10 bucks and they trade at 1025. They don't trade at 25, right? They, they right. trade roughly around the cash value. And that's what it is because what now happens is the cash literally goes into a separate trust. And that yep. trust has a narrow window of time, two years, in which to get a deal done. And more importantly, when they announce the deal, every one of those shareholders gets the right to get their money back. Gets the right to get out, right. That's a huge difference. And there's no other structure like that. Well, Dave, but you know, this, that, those are the, the SPACs that, that I was involved when I was running my fund, right? And, and, and we'd see them, and, and I, I think a, some people, and we, we, we tell ourselves this, is that, okay, yeah, we're going to put our money in here. We're just here for the coupon, right? Yeah, 99% of that, yeah, we're, not, we're never going to agree to the deal that you're, that you're finding, right? We're just, we're just going to clip the coupon of, you know, what, what, because, because there is a, you, you get a coupon, right? There's I a mean, collateral. There's, yeah, yeah. Effectively, you're getting paid for giving them money yeah. to sit there, but yeah, it's, to not, give them the chance it's not like to, you're to, getting, to it's not like a high yield vehicle. It's like your SPAC's no, not no, paying no, no, about no, eight like and a half percent. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, single digit, right? It's the same, yeah. but it's, cash. Like, all right, it's cash. It was real. And, 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 and look, you know, when, when interest rates went down to nothing, I mean, it was really real. A right? big. That's, I mean, I mean yeah. I'm old enough to remember when my short rebate was a, a nice bump to my annual performance. <laughs> I mean, those I, were the days, those were the days, right. But so we say, okay, we're not going to agree to your deal. Exactly. Right. But we're going to be there. Maybe you'll, you know, lightning will strike. It'll be some great deal. I will tell you though, without exception in the, you know, 
my particular fund, we didn't do many of them. The other funds and kind of our complex did more of them. And, and, and everyone went into them with that kind of, well, you know, I'm sure it won't be anything. It'll sure be terrible. And then the weirdest thing happens, right, is that the story of whatever acquisition is made, man, it sounds great. <laughs> man, it sounds great. And so, in fact, although we went into these, we're saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to, we're going to redeem. We're going to redeem. I'm sure of it. We never redeemed. Right? Sorry, <laughs> we never redeemed. We always went with the story well, because it but was. I'll bet you got a pop out of a lot of those, though. I'll bet actually that was a pretty good decision most of the time. Well, and that, that was one thing I learned, you know, too late in my, in my uh, hedge fund career is that <laughs> the, getting the, the IPO allocation, getting the allocation of that pop, man, that's how so many firms, that's, that's how you made your money. Dude, that's, that was the only thing I could do well at the mutual fund I ran. Like, you know, and I drove that thing into the ground, but the performance that I had that was good was based was from the entirely pop. on flipping IPOs. Was, was always from, from, from flipping the pop. And so it just became that. So, so yes, we, we, we went along with them and we got the pop. The problem was when you really did believe in the idea and you well, stuck with it. But that's right? that's that's just a failure of active management, right? That's just, that's a, that's that's buying your own, you know. That's getting high on your own supply, as they say, right? Oh, so, there's 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 a lot of that. that, 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 that but but I think that the, the the salutary quality, the good quality of this sort of modern SPAC revolution is, if you think about the alternative ways that large public, large private companies go public. What are their alternatives? Yes, there's direct listing. I don't want to really get into that too much. Yeah. That is one yeah. way of doing it particularly for certain kinds of companies for whom network a effects are a big deal or, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. However, what this does is it takes the pop and it gives it to the individual investor as opposed to taking the pop and giving it to the person who knows somebody at the brokerage, right? And, and the IPO allocations generally only went to the elite of the capital structure to start with, but anybody can buy a SPAC. And, and I think that's real. Yeah. So, I, I think it's true that it can be real. What I'm starting to see more and more, and we've been we've been looking into a, a few of these a little yeah. bit more closely, is that you know so many of them, the sizing is is so large that what you end up seeing is that it isn't the you know the class A's that bought for ten bucks that 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 are ultimately seeing the seeing the pop because the deal's so big that you've got you know a billion dollars in pipes and pipes. Is that, that is the pipe participant that, that, that captures so much? Well, more yeah, that's. And, and that has so again just for private investment, public equity. Private <laughs> investment, public <laughs> equity. Yes, thank you very much. Right. right. So uh, alongside the spec, so when when the, you know a spec that that I'll use that term that blank check company comes in and says, okay, we've got a deal, we've got an acquisition. Let's say they've got I don't know a billion dollars. Well, a billion dollars ain't going to get that deal done. And so instead, there's two billion dollars or three billion dollars that comes in from a consortium of hedge funds or pension funds or private pools of capital, and they come in alongside the SPAC at the, um, um, on the deal. And in my experience, the pipes tend to dwarf the SPACs, not the other way around. Well, and, yeah. and, and then what you tend to see is that the, you know, obviously the, the original agreement, for, you know, that the security was built around you know, the, the, whatever the combination that takes place, it happens, it, it tends to incorporate, okay, now we've got six share classes. And again, I think it comes back to class A still has the ability to redeem, 
right in the structure right. which is huge if it's a bad deal you get out and that's that's yeah. the key and these things are all known right i mean i i just went through the full deck on the um what is it the, the electric car company that just yeah, yeah, yeah. Put their deck out yesterday. Um, Luce, lucid yes yeah um which you know aside from looking like a heck of a car is an extraordinarily well-produced ipo deck for a company that's not doing an ipo um and right so you're getting all that same information in most of these deals not all of them but you're getting good information the pipe deals that's been a problem that was a huge problem still is a huge problem in the ipo market as it well is. a company knows it's going public they want to raise a bunch of money ahead of time they get all their friends and family to go into the pipe deal yeah. at a 90 percent value because they're theoretically at risk for some period of time, right? And again, you're just adding time to the equation. So now you can reduce the current price. They always feel a little bit like shenanigans to me. I understand why you need them to be able to get these transactions out the door. Um, but you know, it, it also strikes me that they could be doing a secondary offering to the existing shareholders and that would get the same thing done, but. Yeah, and, and that, I guess that's the primary place where I get, and, and this is true for a lot of, you know, the d democratizing investments is, you know, you we've gone through a period in which investors get accustomed to this expectation that, you know, you buy it, you can say no, but if you stick in, you'll get a pop. And, you know, I think there there's probably a some some point where, you know, we, we get to the too clever by half moment for the sponsors, in which they figure out this game in which look, the retail investors all expect the pop, they're not going to read the modifications we put into the agreement that established all these different share classes and, you know, allow the, the pipes to come in at this. And, oh, by the way, you know, we have a slightly different warrant structure than the standard. It's not a big deal. You don't need to worry about it. I mean, that's it. And, and again, I've, I've been cynical a little bit too much on this, this podcast already, but that's where my cynicism comes in is that once you've sort of established, yes, it, like well, as with IPOs, that you could expect the pop, that's your opportunity to step in and as has so often been the case for those who market the idea of democratizing investments through a, a clever structure, and indeed it is a clever structure, and indeed it has features that are far better than the old model and that are interesting, you end up with something that ends up creating an opportunity for those who are in the business of flow. But, 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 but it's, I think it's even worse than that, if you're right, meaning that- the, Which is almost universally the case. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> If, if the advantage for those class A investors is now, oh, we're democratizing the pop. The problem, of course, is that now the pop is already being bought, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, right? so we have seen some premiums showing up early and those just are silly, right? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 but, but it's not uncommon, right? And, 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 I, and I think it becomes increasingly more common when the story or the narrative behind that 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 spac is oh i'm going to buy something amazing right this is how you are going to get access to you know technology you know a company of the future that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get so you should buy it and pay up for it now and and i i don't think that's a mean reverting thing i think in in our world that just continues to you know we can say oh that's silly and, and that doesn't that shouldn't happen and yet it is, and it does. And I, well, I don't but, see. So not to get too philosophical about this, but 
Please. This is all trying to solve the fundamental problem of capitalism, right? Which is that any capitalist system allowed to run without any checks ends up with a single holder of capital, right? There's a hundred different versions of that model you can run. Yep. They all point to the same thing, right? Because it's right. the farmer fable, right? If you have three farmers and one has a crappy year and one has a great year, well, the only option the guy who can't eat has is to sell his capital to the person who has yeah. surplus. And yet and on average, on average, the system looks like it's grown. It's just, but at the end of the day, it's one right. person's guy at all. Right. right. And so, so the argument for capitalism is you're, you're allowing that one farmer who had the great year to get the benefit of all of his smarts, ignoring the fact that luck has a significant role in almost all outcomes financially. So, you know, that is an inherent flaw in capitalism and the way various systems deal with it is by finding ways to reallocate capital from that one winner who would win normally back out into the system to form new capital, right? Capital formation. Yep. We talk about like, it's a huge policy issue. Capital formation literally means finding a way to take capital from somebody who has it and give it to somebody who doesn't. It's redistribution of wealth. And we can call a lot of different things, but that's what happens. So when something like the SPAC shows up, which seems like it's all of a sudden going, I hate the phrase democratizing investing, but it, it seems like it's greased the skids for capital formation by removing a source of error. Well, of course, all those people who are profiting from that error show up to try to put it all back in. I mean, it, it just we're still yeah. trying to solve the yep. same problem, which is capital formation. I, I, I completely agree, Dave. This, this is why I'm, I'm so, I'll say right, I'm so opposed, frankly, to thinking that the answer to that problem you're describing is to democratize Wall Street. I, I, I want to reduce Wall Street's impact on our democracy, right? I, I want to reduce the, the, the scope of Wall Street, not, not increase it so that everything but, is now Wall Street. But, but then the only alternative, like to think at very high level, like forget what we know about the math, Right. right. At a very high level, what that implies is that you somehow then take things that were private goods, Wall Street's goods, and you public them. Right. You take them public. And that is something that is very know. anathema to the American way of no, life. No, 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 no. I, I, th I, th I don't think that I don't think that's right. I, I think what well, I don't think that's the only way. Right. I think that there are. I'll, I'll call them. It's the difference between the public markets that we have today and the way that spreads this financialization disease into everything, every aspect of, of, of life, I, I, I think that there are private markets. I think there are communities. I, I think there are places where private capital can still find a transmission belt to managers of real world companies who can make more productive uses of that capital than, than, than I could. I, I, I'd like to think that there's still a realm for truly private market investments, right? And, 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 but that's given the scale of the public markets and, the, and the, the institutions around it and the enormous leverage that, that's possible in, 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 in these markets. It's like, I'd, I'd like to play a poker game with other people with similar stack sizes, right? right. And, without, and, and without a dealer that's gonna take a 10% rake out of everything, but that's, instead but that's of what we have today. So you gotta, but that's sorry, inherently anti-capitalist because in a capitalist system, after the first hand, 
whoever won that first hand, you play it blind, doesn't no skill involved. Whoever wins that first hand at the poker game, mathematically is by vastly the most likely to win the entire game, right? Because that's just how it works. If you have more capital, you are able to take risks, risks that other people at the table can't. You are able to bully people in the bottom end of the stack out very quickly, right? And, and so that first win determines so much unless you put some check on the system. So the, I do want to put a check on the system. The check on the system I'd like to have is that stack size can't just be levered up the way it is today, right? I, I think there, and there are ways to reduce leverage in the system. Mm -hmm. You know, the best way would be to increase the price of money, but you know, I'm not a, that much of a dreamer to think that we're ever going to, you know, get off of zero interest rates. But, but, but I do think that, that the check on the system is to try to reduce leverage and the ease with which money begets money for increasing that stack size. I think the other checks in the system to continue with this poker example is to not <laughs> allow the institutions to always have the dealer button in front of them, <laughs> right? right. So, and and, and that, 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 that there are informational transparencies that should be checks. And, and I think that the way that what we're seeing today with SPACs and the, let's call it the proxy light filings, <laughs> right? That we see all over the place that's going in the wrong direction, not the right direction. I think there is a role for more muscular regulatory uh, uh, input on this, right? Not to put more burdens on the retail investor, but to put more burdens on the companies with the big stacks who are saying, okay, this is where I want to get an even bigger stack for myself. Yeah. And, and certainly things like antitrust enforcement, you know, yep. play a role in that, right. That's effectively stack management to, to extend the metaphor beyond its natural life. Um, you know, the socialist answer here is to say that, okay, well, you're, you're, the rake is determined by stack size, right? Nobody likes that answer, right? If the, if, if how you're actually paying for the system is based on who has the biggest stack, Nobody likes that, but that's actually the right way to do it. That's how you equalize the system, right? You remove capital from the winners at the table so that the people at the bottom end of the system have their opportunity for luck as well, right? Mathematically, everybody does better as a society when you do that, but it looks like communism. So it's just not even part of the American dialogue. Yeah, <clears throat> I'll, I'll jump in here to say, I, I mean, I know we're, 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 we've delved kind of deeply into the philosophical here. I, I don't necessarily agree with that dichotomy, you know, and, and of all the people probably on this podcast, I'm probably the most, you know, traditional free markets, you know, in, in, in my disposition. And, you know, there's, there's capitalism and, and a sort of what I would say, you know, free markets capitalism on the one side, and then there's the meme of yay free market capitalism, right? And I think the ideas that we have built in around, well, you know, monopolies exist because they deliver the best product. We can't regulate that right, right. as if that is actually a tenant of free market capitalism. It's absolutely not. I mean, any of the foundational thinkers of what we now think of as, as free market capitalism would have been horrified the, by the idea that we would allow monopolies to grow unchecked and their ability to exert this power with without resisting them with, with forms of regulation. And so I, I, I don't think that it is necessarily an indictment of or that the, the doing all these things we, we talk about, pulling away how important markets are to our democracy, right? As, as Ben said, mm -hmm. is an impossibility within capitalism. I just think it means we reject this mimetic idea of, 
yay free market capitalism that has absolutely nothing to do with the thing itself, which recognizes how concentrations of, of power, how the, the regulatory regime which has been built up around markets creates these edge cases in which organizations which are designed to profit off of the edge cases created by the regulatory structure and the laws which undergird those free markets that, that they're allowed to, to produce those profits off of those things. And, I, and I, I think we can regulate those without obviating the power of this emergent voluntary creation of, of markets. Yeah, I, ju I just want to reduce scale. When it comes <laughs> down to it, that's really all I want to do. I just want to reduce scale. Reduce the and monoculture of factory farming to yeah. productive, large, true agriculture. But, but, but the price I would have to pay for, to pay for that to your point, Dave, is uh, number doesn't go up when you do that. Number go down. <laughs> well, we don't let things go down, right? That's the other thing yeah, is, right? We've, exactly. We, we have the double whammy of, of, I would argue, nearly complete regulatory capture, uh, you know, particularly after the wake of Citizens United, right? Effectively, money is power in politics, and, and that is just the way it is. And I'm, I'm not trying to say tear the system down. I'm just saying my job is to recognize reality and tell people how to mm -hmm. maneuver that is reality. We have nearly complete regulatory capture of the largest monopolies in the country. That's just the way things work, you know, and we have runaway income inequality, which, which does not self-correct. There is no mean reversion in income inequality. It goes the other direction that requires some sort of regulatory response to fix. And you can't have both those things exist at the same time. On top of that, we've decided whole sectors of the quote unquote private economy are in fact public goods that we must support with public right. dollars, right? So if we won't let a bank fail, and I'm not saying we should let the bank fail, but if we won't let the bank fail, then we change the risk dynamics for the entire market every time we do that. And the reason we don't let them fail, again, not that I'm, I'm stealing things from Adam Butler and Mike Green's podcast like we, last week, but the reason we don't let things fail is because we have made the social safety net in private employment. So we don't let yeah. Citibank fail because there are too many people who work there. And, and people rely on that too much. There's no, they all get fired. It has enormous ramifications. So we don't let companies fail. Well, and, and I think that is a part. And I think the, the first part of what you said is, is a big part of why we don't let them fail as well, which gets back to what Ben said, which is this idea that the markets have become so important to our democracy, we cannot allow them to fall. And the fact that we have defined the success of markets by whether number go up, as opposed to whether the markets are capable of facilitating price discovery is the great betrayal of free markets, not the great triumph. We define our markets based on whether they facilitate number go up, whether then they facilitate price discovery. That, and that to me really is a betrayal. That's, that's the thing that makes me mad. I know you get mad about a lot of things, Ben, but that's the one that's that makes the one me that mad. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Well, look, I, this, this is kind of, where it always comes down to, because it, in all these conversations with so many people, it's okay, what do we do about it? Yeah. And Dave, I think you're exactly right, is that, you know, it's the whole, every culture has this, where you say, you ask for directions, and they say, well, you can't get there from here. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and I think that's true. I don't think you can get there from here. So what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is, well, how do we hold on, right? How, how do we keep the flame alive of what free markets really are? 
right? Which ain't yay free markets, which ain't, oh, monopoly is good because it'll give you a lower price to the consumer, right? That ain't free markets. Well, we, we increasingly don't have markets at all. That's the problem, right? I mean, we talk about wanting free market capitalism, except we can't actually have them be free. Nothing can ever truly be a market. And we don't really want unfettered capitalism. What we want is the best parts of all three of those things. And, and you know, to your point, like, how, how do we solve this? I'm, I'm pretty trapped in the horns of that dilemma myself because the policy responses that are implied in response seem utterly unpalatable. Um, yeah, it's, like, it's, I, it's, it's BITFD, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, to, it, to some extent it is, but, you know, uh, you know, Mike Green would call it sort of rewriting the operating system, right? They're, they're fundamental regulatory structures that we seem unwilling to address yeah. or to talk about. And, and we also just work with a set of math that doesn't recognize value outside of very specific things we have chosen to value, certain intangibles, certain yep. resources, right? But I tell you, Dave, I don't want to rewrite the operating system yet, right? I don't, I don't want that sort of top-down uh, imposition of a rewrite of the operating system because I'm, I am a thousand percent confident that that operating system would be written by, I'll, I'll say, the people I don't want to write the operating system. Totally fair. Totally fair concern. I, I, I think that I think that what we have to do, and this is what I mean about getting to a place where we can get there from here, is, and 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 nobody likes to hear this, right? Nobody, especially not the crypto guys, especially not the Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the way the way the only way to get to a place where we can get there from here, I think, is to smart is to start in local communities with small, it seems boring, it seems stupid, it seems like this will never make a difference. I think it's the only thing that can get us to a point where we can make a difference. That, that, that we, it, it's, it's like growing a crystal, right? It, it's the, it's, you get the right structure working, and this is what I meant about finding private markets, your own neighborhood. You put money into your local Whatever, some manager, somebody with an idea, somebody with a thing. I, 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 you're shaking your head, Dave. You don't, you don't think there's a possibility of doing this on a local basis? Look, I'm a, I'm a local guy. Like I live in the town that you I are was a local born guy, in, right? I mean, like, yeah. so, so, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a small town New England as they get, and to me, the New England town meeting is still the finest form of government ever invented in the world. And if we could just run the whole country that way, that would be great. The problem with what you're saying, Ben, is not that there's anything wrong with the intent. And there's yeah. not even anything that there would be wrong with the action. I mean, you've done this with the work you've done on, on PPE, right? Like those kinds of local actions have significant real impacts on real human lives. Very noble. The problem is what it does is it turns this into a donor class problem. Instead of saying the problem is that 1% of the population now controls all of the wealth and power from any, for any intents and purposes, mm -hmm. and that we should fix that, what we're saying is, no, 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 we're just going to ask nicely for that 1% to start spending that money on reallocating the capital voluntarily because they might do that. I don't buy it. I don't like if you if you've spent any time in the nonprofit world, it's talk about getting cynical fast, right? Nonprofits live to serve the needs of the donors, not the needs of the organization, with very few exceptions. Uh, oh, well, not just the donors, but but just the management of the nonprofit, right? I, I mean, you know, you know, I wrote lucky, this note about the you know the AMA, lucky. and it's it's just it's just the most disgusting thing in the world. It really yeah. is.
Um, so that's my concern is that it's no, and, and I was, I was saying in this tune too, like a week ago, I was having a conversation with somebody where I said almost word for word, what you said and got convinced yeah. the other way, because it ultimately does. Like you said, put money in your local community that implies you already won. You already won the game. And now you're asking me to play a different game. What is the person who's making 35 grand at, you know, at, as a waitress down the street, if, if they'd be lucky enough to do that, how did they make an impact on that? Because that's 90% of the population. Like they don't have a voice. They don't have a pathway. They can't rely well, on a bunch of rich white guys to solve it for them. Yeah, but, but it's not about, when I, when I was using that, that example of putting money into a local thing, right? That was in response to the question about what is a market, right? What is this transmission belt of private capital into more sure. productive means, right? That, that was that example. I actually don't think it's so much about money. I think it's much more about your time. It's much more about your attention. It's about very small acts of freaking helping your neighbor, right? Do that, right? Those, those small acts. I, 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 I actually don't think that putting your allegiance to a, I'll call it a political party or a corporation Right? I, I don't think that, 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 that any of those entities are see you as anything more than, than, than a means to an end. Sure. And I, I, like I say, I don't have the answer for the top-down solution. I don't yeah, think an answer either. exists. So I'm just looking to keep our souls alive, frankly. And, and right? for, totally noble. Totally noble. And, and absolutely necessary. I'm simply saying insufficient. Well, and, and, and I'm, I'm sort of solving for an, a different objective function. It's not that I don't see both the, the, the problems on multiple dimensions of, of wealth inequality or the, the need to resolve them, but in this very narrow sense, right? In what we're talking about with, with markets, the, the specific concern that I have is that all of the incentives that are now endemic that we've created to prioritize narrative creation and to to take actions which will make the short-term price go up as much as possible and that all of the the value extraction that occurs along the various phases of of that process by people who are you know sitting in whether it is you know, in you know, sometimes market makers, sometimes brokers, sometimes banks, sometimes lawyers, sometimes you know, consultants, sometimes other asset owners, right? There are people who are sitting there who now know the game is narrative, and now the, the game is to extract value as much as you can from producing flow and expectation of, of number go up. All of those things to me are value sucks from capital that could be diverted to productive uses elsewhere in the world. And they, they reduce the productivity of, of everything we're doing as a country. And so my view and, and my objective for this very narrow problem, it's not that I'm saying that addressing wealth inequality isn't a, a valid objective. I think that, that it is, and we should talk about that. But for the purpose of increasing the role of markets in productively deploying capital, that to me is the reason for pulling away from our obsession with public markets as the mechanism for both evaluating and the narrative of how our country is doing, as well as 
how those of us who are in between that 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 person who's laboring and working hard for thirty five thousand dollars a year and the the multi billionaire who are in a an investor class who are thinking about what is the the most productive way that I can invest my capital for my country, my community, and for my children. Right. That's what I'm. That's I've what never I'm. Met about. one of those people. You know, one of those people. Have you ever met a billionaire that you genuinely believe those are the three things they care about is growing growing the country? No, they care about wealth preservation and maximization and how they can use that wealth for power. And I say that for some of the people I've met that are dear friends. Yeah, they may be doing they may be doing that in a direction with a vector I approve of, but they're still doing it. I hear you. I agree. Look, Fitzgerald had it right. You know, the very rich are different from you and me. Right. He really did have it right. where I want to, this is this is the place where we need to stop the conversation. And I, it, it, no, 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 because I'm going to do it with a challenge, right? And this was this is where we stopped the conversation on the very first podcast. It was around crypto, and and the, and the challenge is this: the challenge to you, Dave, is to think about what is to be done that is at a lower level than a top-down rewrite the operating system. Right, the change that, that could actually be meaningful, that has the chance to then, I, I still like to use, you know, grow crystal-like, you, you know, and, and, and to, to, to become something over a very long period of time. The challenge to me is to think larger, right? To think larger than, uh, you know, helping your neighbor down the street. Not that I'm going to stop helping my neighbor down the street, but what are, you know, we've built something, I think, kind of interesting in, in this community, this epsilon theory community, it's not small, right? And is, is, is there some way, this is the challenge to me, to think maybe a little bit bigger? For you guys to meet at my level of enlightenment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we'll be, we'll meet objective. together at the rest of the level of enlightenment. <laughs> so with that, Dave, Dave Nodding, I can't thank you enough. Again, ETF trends. Dave writes a lot. He writes really well. Check out, check out the website. There's and a lot tons of, of stuff there. I mean, Twitter's where a lot of his best stuff is. Twitter's fantastic. So, 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 so at Dave Nodig, right? In ADIG. Yep, simple. At Dave yeah, Nodig. Yeah. Easiest way to find anything I'm doing, if you care. Well, so we, this we was care. hour one, right? We got another four hours to go. <laughs> stay <laughs> tuned, everyone. Yeah, yeah, stay tuned. After everyone. a word from our sponsors. Right? No. <laughs> Speaking of sponsor, please remember if you liked this, um, give us a review, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you can. And especially because Ben stopped himself before he said Bitcoin bros. He said yes. Bitcoin and paused. And said people. Yes. So if yes. you if you were thinking three stars, now you can give us four instead. I'm learning. I'm learning. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll see you next time with the Epsilon Theory Podcast. Thanks, everyone.